Please take uh, your Bibles with me now, and uh, we'll step away from our morning studies in Genesis uh, for a few weeks and turn this morning to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and as I said at the beginning, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 17. Would you please stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word uh, from Luke uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and following. Hear now uh, the, the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zecharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went in the, into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. We pray and ask the Lord's blessing now upon his word. Let's pray together. Now, dear Father, uh, we thank you uh, once again uh, for this, your holy, uh, inerrant, inspired word. We thank you that it is near to us and not afar, uh, in our mouths, on our lips, and in our hearts, and all by your grace. Thank you, O Lord, for sending Jesus Christ, your Son, to save us from all that our sins deserve and to make us your own. And thank you for sending a forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord 
that all might believe on him when he appears. Bless our hearts now. Send your spirit to every heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during this uh, Advent season, as we do each year, uh, we love to turn our attention to the Gospels uh, that we might uh, read again the marvelous account of uh, all the events surrounding the Nativity uh, of our Lord. And while the different Gospel writers uh, tell the story of Christ's divine origin and virgin birth from different perspectives and highlight different events and characters, uh, they tell one unified story. Here in Luke chapter 1, before we arrive at the nativity itself, uh, it is being made clear that we already stand on the threshold of the supremely important period in the history of mankind. That period of approximately 33 years during which the incarnate Son of God was on this earth of ours as the God-man living among men. The appearance and activity of Jesus on earth is the central and most important event of all time. Everything that had gone before it had led up to it, and everything that has followed upon it is connected to it. It's been rightly said, I think, that all of human history is a scaffolding to support and to carry to completion the lordship of Jesus Christ and the preeminence of his church. And so considering the great importance of the subject matter, it should come to no, as no surprise to us to read that Luke has taken such pains to ensure that his reader might know and might know with absolute certainty the truthfulness and reliability of the account he is going to give of the birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 1, notice that he tells us in verse 1 that he is aware that many others have undertaken to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled, notice the word, fulfilled among us. The coming of Jesus Christ is a fulfillment. Luke is very aware of that. The life of Jesus Christ is unique in that sense. It can be said to be a fulfillment. The form of the participle used here indicates a permanent state of affairs after the completed action. What it means is that Jesus is the final fulfillment. The word spoken through him is a final word and that no future fulfillment other than Jesus is to be expected. In Jesus, the divine Prophecies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled, and in his coming, a new era, the Messianic age, has been inaugurated. The fullness of the saving purpose of God has been revealed in Christ. 
and now the glad tidings must be proclaimed to all men. And so Luke here is giving a kind of justification of his writing, a justification for his having undertaken to set forth a written declaration of the gospel narrative. Originally, Christians had clung to the living spoken word as communicated to them by the apostles and other ministers and eyewitnesses of the gospel story. But as the church grew, as it extended further and further, and as the apostles began to pass away one by one, there arose a more urgent need of authoritative written accounts of the facts on which the Christian faith is based. That is what Luke is doing. He was, as you know, a physician, a brilliant man, a future companion of the Apostle Paul. His education shows in many ways, but in his ability uh, to write the highest classical Greek. But as a Christian now, as a man who has a far-seeing vision, Luke has a strong sense of this need. You and I have the privilege of knowing that we will always, we trust, have the Bible available to us and to our children. But Luke and his contemporaries did not yet have that privilege. That was the reason for undertaking the great task that Christians everywhere would have a solid, reliable, historically accurate rendering of the life of Christ and of the truth of the gospel. Thus, we have the gospel according to Luke. And verse 2 makes it clear that the other accounts that Luke is familiar with are based on the testimony of those who were uh, from the beginning, as he calls them, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and that they have delivered these things to Luke and to others. And what he's saying is that those writings are by no means the collecting of legends or of human gossip, but they are the written accounts of what actually happened and had been communicated by authoritative witnesses who were actually there. They are therefore not fabricated fables, but the written statements of accounts of the apostles themselves. And so in light of all of this then, verse 3, Luke says that it seemed good to him, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write an orderly account. Now we do not know for sure who Theophilus was. It is a Greek name. He was likely a high-ranking official in the Greco-Roman world. The name means lover of God or perhaps loved by God. He was apparently a convert to Christ or at least one who was receiving instruction in the Christian faith. It is possible that he helped to finance the eventual dissemination of Luke's completed gospel. But it was common in those days, as it has been throughout history, to dedicate a written work to an important and powerful individual. But what is most important is this. Luke is telling us that his gospel is the result of the most painstaking historical research. 
that he has taken the time and the effort to consult the accounts of eyewitnesses, to sift through the various writings that have preceded his, and then only once that he had possessed complete understanding of the facts did he proceed to write them down in this manner. Beloved, it is a reminder that your Bible is reliable. Your Bible is trustworthy. You can rely on the things that you read here in the Word of God. This is not legend, nor folklore, nor myth. The Bible and the Christian faith rest on historical fact and are capable of holding up under the most intensive scrutiny. Luke is saying something remarkable, that he himself guarantees the truth of the gospel narrative. And this is one of the unique characteristics of the Christian faith, that it is based on definite historical facts, not on speculative theories, not on uncertainties, nor on half-truths. Therefore, possessing such confidence, he writes in order that Theophilus, but not only Theophilus, anyone earnestly seeking to understand the Christian faith may possess certainty, he says in verse 4, of those things. Dear friend, if you are doubting, if you are unsure of what you believe, if you wonder sometimes about the existence of God or why Jesus Christ is important and why he matters to you, you can know, Luke is saying, you can have certainty, you can have assurance and knowledge, and Luke is telling you that you can find it in the gospel. With that in mind, isn't it worth reading then and worth reading with a heart and mind that is humble and that seeks after truth? Now, turning to the beginning of the narrative in verse 5, it bears remembering that for a period of about 400 years after the appearance of the last Old Testament prophets, no further direct divine revelation had been given for four centuries now to the chosen people of God. The voice of prophecy had gone silent for the Old Testament revelation had been rounded off. Everything was now ready for the second and last phase of divine revelation. And though this time God would turn to the whole world with the gospel Notice that when he begins this new work, he does not scornfully break with the past nor with the instrument by which the, the past work was affected. It is therefore from an Israelite priest that he now causes to come forth the man who is to be the Messiah's forerunner to introduce to the world the redemption of prepared for it. Further, the scene is the temple itself, the center of Israel's worship and her theocracy. 
that scene is the cradle of the new covenant of the worship of spirit and truth. The scene is therefore utterly Jewish, though the ultimate vision of the gospel will be to the ends of the earth. The history of John the Baptist, as we call him, and of his parents, forms the link of divine revelation in the Old Testament period and in the New. Here we see all things of the past linking up with that which was to come. The old and the new are a continuous movement in the purpose and plan of God. The events take place, we read in verse 5, in the days of Herod. You know that name, King of Judea. This was a particularly dark time in Jewish history. Though he has gone down in history as a great builder, including a great addition to the second temple, Herod was a particularly evil man. His reign was stained with blood. Out of paranoia, he killed a number of members of his own family. And so the words in the days of Herod, king of Judea, point to an ominous and calamitous period in the history of the Jewish nation. And yet, just as his uh, dominion is coming to a hopeless end, just then, a light will dawn. Now, since the time of David, the priests of Israel had been divided into 24 uh, orders. The order of Abijah was the eighth. Zechariah, or Zechariah, as we often call him, belonged to this order, the eighth order of Abijah. His wife, too, was from a priestly family. She was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, to be a priest was a great blessing. To be married to a priest's daughter was considered a double blessing and a special distinction. They used to say of an excellent woman, she deserves to be married to a priest. That was back when the priests, of course, took a wife. John the Baptist was therefore in the fullest sense of honored priestly origin. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. That is, he remembers his covenant. And Elizabeth means my God is an oath. That is to say, my God is the absolutely faithful one. The names are rich and full and pregnant with meaning. They were given to them by God in his providential rule. At a time that we stand at the door, which will lead to the full revelation of God in Christ. Everything is declaring, even the names, that God is faithful. Now we read in verse 6 that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God that they walked in obedience to the Lord and were found blameless. However, we read in verse 7 that Elizabeth was barren, that they had no children, and that were both were well advanced in years. Surely for years, for decades, they had longed 
for a child. And though they were righteous in the sight of God, he had nevertheless withheld from them the desire of their heart. And so there was hanging over this godly, aged couple a great sorrow. For a Jewish married couple, childlessness was a double sorrow because this would rule them out as potential parents or ancestors of the expected Messiah. And their case seemed especially hopeless because not only was Elizabeth barren, but they were both old. But they would not be the first elderly couple in the Bible to be blessed with a child. But however sore their affliction was, dear friends, they did not allow the disappointment to embitter their lives and to estrange them from God. They accepted the trial as ordained by God and they persevered faithfully in the service of God. Now when it came time for Zechariah to burn incense, we read that he went into the temple of the Lord. Now there were many priests, and because there were so many priests, a priest was not allowed to burn incense more than once in his lifetime. This was therefore a great day for Zechariah's. An exciting day, a great privilege when the lot finally fell to him. His elderly heart would have skipped a beat. Now incense was burned twice daily on the altar of incense in the temple at the time of the morning and at the time of the evening sacrifices. Indeed, the burning of the incense was the apex of the morning and evening service. And according to the ancient Jewish rabbis, this was the part of the temple service that was most beloved by God. For the burning of the incense was symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God. And the burning of the incense had to take place after the sacrifice because only after the atonement was made could communion with God take place. It was therefore with this rich theological understanding that Zechariah goes into the temple to minister on that very special day with the faithful, verse 10, the multitude of worshipers praying outside at the very hour of incense. It was at this very moment that the angel of the Lord appeared in the temple. Appeared to a righteous, elderly priest of Israel who with his wife had known personal pain, who is waiting for and just then is praying for the consolation of God to appear. When the nation of Israel is at a time of deep and dark despair, under wicked leadership, and after 400 or more years 
of divine silence. Just then, there appears an angel, the messenger of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, just where Zechariah is administering his priestly duties. He is understandably shaken. He is taken aback. It's the universal response to seeing an angel in the Bible. He's deeply troubled and overwhelmed with a sense of awe and overcome with fear. What could this be all about? What could this possibly mean? What is going to happen to me? Did I do something wrong? Am I going to live? But he had no need to fear. The angel assures him. Notice, angels are real, aren't they? Our world is not purely material or materialistic, as the materialist would tell you. There is heaven and hell. There is God. There are angels and there are devils. Angels are real. They are fearsome. Get that little cute little cherub with a harp on the cloud picture out of your mind. They're highly intelligent. They communicate. They worship God. They do his bidding. They go on errands from heaven to earth. Your prayer has been heard. Oh, how many prayers. Your wife will bear you a son. Call him John. Now, his personal prayers for a son, to be sure, had been heard. But how much more his prayers for the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of Israel. And you can see, can't you, how the two come together. Your son, your and Elizabeth's son, Zecharias, shall prepare the way for the Messiah. Can you imagine receiving such an announcement? Your son will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's not the only time in the Bible that being filled with strong drink is put in juxtaposition or in opposition to being filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend upon certain individuals to anoint them for certain tasks and ministries. But this one, 
This one will be filled with the Holy Spirit his entire life, beginning in the womb of his mother. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So let me draw your attention this morning to the nature of the forerunner's ministry and to the distinctly spiritual nature of that ministry. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now there is an assumption in this verse. There is an assumption that I don't want you to miss. And it is this. That many of the children of Israel need to be turned, that they need to be turned back to the Lord their God. There is an assumption that though they are members of God's visible church, though they are part of his covenant people, though they are Jewish and Israelites and circumcised and descendants of Abraham, Their hearts are in need of repentance. This is a message that goes back to the prophets of old who were sent by God one after the other to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to God. Israel was, through its sins, again and again estranged from God. And it was the function of a true prophet to call the people back to the ways of righteousness that they might serve God again. But the people were in need of renewal, always in need of repentance, always in need of turning their hearts back to God. And they are again in such a need. And John will be sent and many Not all, but many will be turned back to God. Israel had had many spiritually dark times. Many times throughout its history when faith was in short supply. When the people did not love the Lord their God with all their hearts, nor walk in his holy ways and observe his laws. This was one of those times one of those dark times. Now, to be sure, there were faithful Israelites alive at this time. We've read about two of them this morning. We will read about Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon. But the nation as a whole was faithless. The nation as a whole was not righteous. The nation as a whole had become worldly and was not seeking the Lord. And we know this, dear friends, because when Christ appeared to them, when he appeared to his own, to his own people, to the people of Israel, well, they rejected him 
Now, to be sure, there were many who loved him, many who rejoiced at his appearing, many who trusted in his saving power, many who followed him from among his people. But the response of Israel to her Messiah is summed up in John's gospel in this way. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And it was not a lack of information. It was not a lack of data or a lack of understanding or a lack of opportunity. But fundamentally, sin and unbelief that kept them from embracing their Messiah. But the Messianic age we are reading was to be characterized by many turning in their hearts back to God. There was to be a turning of the fathers to the children and of the children to the fathers, for that is the complete reading of Malachi 4, 4 and 5, that the angel quotes from here. There is to be a restoration of the functioning of the family in the ways of the fathers, transmitting the ways of the Lord to the children and a restoring of the children, the returning to their fathers to listen to and to believe and to obey the words spoken to them about the great things of God. The Messianic age will restore the family, the love of fathers and children. Christ will bless the propagation of the gospel from age to age, from the old to the young. And yet there was a terrible threat attached to that promise. Luke does not include it here. But in Malachi 4.6, we read this lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, if those words are familiar to you, you may know them as the very last words of Malachi, the very last words of the very last prophet of the Old Testament, and therefore the very last words of the Old Testament. That was the last divine oracle before this one. It was a promise of spiritual blessing and renewal in the Messianic age. And it was a threat of a curse for those who do not take part by faith in the renewal of all things. And those words do not apply only to the time of final consummation, but they apply in the first place to the time of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ, his appearing, already brought that great and terrible day into the life of the Jewish people. By his appearance, the people were sifted. And when the majority refused to accept him, the judgments of God smote the people in an unparalleled manner until Jerusalem and the whole of the Jewish national existence in Palestine was totally destroyed. And so the angel says that John will appear as a prophet who will look like and act like Elijah. He will be, as it were, 
a reappearance of that fearless prophet of old. He will call the people back to God. And he will pronounce divine judgment on sinners. And he will do so without respect of persons. Beloved, as we come to a close this morning, I want to impress upon you these are not empty words on a page. God means what he says. We've already spoken this morning of his faithfulness. Everything he says will happen, will happen. He has sent a forerunner, a prophet, one to prepare the way for the Messiah, whose spiritual ministry it shall be to call the people of God back to repentance and to turn in their hearts to God. He holds out that invitation and it is held out still to you and me. The call goes out to all without discrimination, to all who will hear it, to all who have ears to hear, to all who have been given eyes to see and hearts to believe. And it goes out today. There is a church today, just as there was then. But there are those in the church whose hearts have grown cold. There are those who have walked away in their hearts from the Lord, even though they be baptized church members. They live as if they were unbelievers, though they have been identified with the people of God. Their lives, their words, their thoughts, but most importantly, their hearts are far from God. They, through their continual sinning, have become estranged from God. They have reasoned that they can live their lives without God that life is possible without God. By their lives and their hearts, they show that they deem the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of little importance. The life of Jesus Christ is making little difference to them. The words of Jesus Christ have become irrelevant to them. Their fathers may Teach them the word of God, but their hearts are not turned to their fathers. Or the fathers, many of them, their hearts are not turned to their children. They are not kind, nor sympathetic, nor understanding, nor encouraging to their children. They've all but given up teaching their children and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And to use the angel's words, many in the church have not been turned from the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. They're living their own wisdom. They're believing the wisdom of the world. They don't believe the wisdom of righteousness, the way of God. Beloved, if there is one thing this passage impresses upon us, it is this horrifying truth 
It is very possible for the externally religious church-attending person to be cold and distant in his heart to God. Listen again. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. They had the promises. They had the covenants. They had the ordinances. They had the blessings. But many, many among them did not have faith. That is why the ancient Jews lost everything that marked them as a people because they did not embrace Jesus when he came. Their land was struck with a curse. What makes you and I think we can escape the judgment of God if we resist the son he gave us and the prophets he gives us? So turn while there is time. Repent of your sins before it is too late. But turn in your hearts to Jesus, who is full of compassion and saving power. And he will surely save you. But turn. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. And we pray that you write its eternal truth on our hearts. Send your spirit now to every heart and pass none of us by. For Jesus' sake, amen.